Chapter 22 So, that is how my family entered politics, Ganapati. Gangaji was more or less already in it, of course, since his crusade for justice had brought him smack up against the injustice of foreign rule. But now, Dhritarashtra, with his dark glasses and white cane, and Pandu, whom celibacy had driven to fat, joined the cause full-time. Vidur too might have joined, indeed, if he wished to. He came down from Delhi the day after the annexation and the Bibigar massacre and informed Gangaji and his brothers that he had resigned from the service. What? exclaimed Dhritarashtra. Resigned? Good thing, said Pandu. Well done, Vidur. You shouldn't have joined the bastards in the first place. Withdraw it at once, Gangaji said. Vidur blinked in astonishment. I beg your pardon, uncle, he asked, for he was a polite young man. Withdraw it, Gangaji said tersely, at once. Withdraw my resignation? But I can't possibly do that. Why not? Have they already accepted it? No, Vidur admitted. They haven't even seen it yet. I've put my letter of resignation in the undersecretary's in-tray. He'll find it when he comes in on Monday morning. No, he won't, said Thritarashtra, who was quick on the uptake, because you'll go back to Delhi immediately and take it out of his in-tray before he sees it. But why? Vidur asked despairingly. You can't seriously want me to serve this alien government? A government that has done this to our people? Whether it is the government you will be serving or the people whom they have harmed is only a matter of opinion, said Ganga sententiously. Explain it to him, Dhritarashtra. Don't you see, Vidur? asked Dhritarashtra, who, despite his blindness, or perhaps because of it, revelled in optical illusions. We need you there. If we are going to fight the Raj effectively, we shall need our own friends and allies within the structure. And if we win, he added, his voice acquiring that dreamy quality that women in Bloomsbury had found irresistible during his student days, we shall still need able and experienced Indians to run India for us. And so, Vidur reluctantly stayed on in the ICS, and because he had many of his father's good qualities, rose with remarkable rapidity up the rungs of the State's Department. His princely upbringing at Hastinapur had given him the knack of dealing with Indian royalty. He understood their whims and wants, indulged their eccentricities and interpreted them sympathetically to the British. In time, he became a trusted intermediary between the pink masters and their increasingly assertive brown subjects. But we must put Vidur aside for a moment, Ganapati, to look more carefully at Gangaji and his two princely disciples as they, in turn, rose to the peak of the nationalist movement. Dhritarashtra's disappointment with fatherhood and the failing health of his grim wife drove him wholeheartedly into politics. Here, he surprised everyone with his flair for the task. He had the blind man's gift of seeing the world not as, as it was, but as he wanted it to be. Even better, he was able to convince everyone around him that his vision was superior to theirs. 
In a short while, he was, despite his handicap, a leading light of the Kaurava party, drafting its press releases and official communications to the government, formulating its positions on foreign affairs, and establishing himself as the party's most articulate and attractive spokesman on just about anything on which Cantabrigian Fabianism had given him an opinion. Gangaji, the party's political and spiritual mentor, made no secret of his preference for the slim and confident young man. Pandu, in the circumstances, took it all rather well. He saw the world very differently from his blind half-brother. His recent brush with the angels of death and his subsequent immersion in the scriptures had made him more of a traditionalist than the idealistic Tritharashtra and the solidity of his appearance testified to one whose feet were staunchly planted on terra firma. Not for Pandu the flights of fancy of his sightless sibling, nor for that matter the ideological flirtations, the passionate convictions, the grand sweeping gestures of principle that became the hallmark of Tritarashtra's political style. Pandu believed in taking stock of reality, preferably with a clenched fist and eyes in the back of one's head. He balanced an hour of meditation with an hour of martial arts. Of course, I believe in non-violence, he would explain. But I want to be prepared just in case non-violence doesn't believe in me. His duties as the party's chief organizer were indirectly responsible for his political differences with Dhritarashtra. The process of building a party structure and a cadre committed to run it in the teeth of colonial hostility convinced him that discipline and organization were far greater virtues than ideals and doctrines. It was a classic distortion Ganapati, to which our late leader would herself one day fall prey. The elevation of means over end, of methods over aspirations. As long as Gangaji was there, he shrewdly harnessed the divergent skills of my two sons to the common cause. But when his grip began to slip... <clears throat> but you see, Ganapati, I am getting ahead of my story again. You mustn't let me. I haven't yet told you about Kunti, Pandu's faithfully infidelious wife, and how she fulfilled her husband's extraordinary request for progeny. For it was not only Gandhari the Grim who assured India's next generation of leadership by her exertions and labour. After all, Ganapati, as you well know, we were to develop a pluralist system, so a plurality of leaders had to be born to run it. Stop looking so lavicious, young man. I've no intention of offering you a ringside seat by Kunti's bed. Facts. That's all I intend to record. Facts and names. This is history, do not forget, not pornography. In fact, if you must know, Pandu helped choose the genetic mix his sons would inherit. Kunti's first postmarital lover, yes, first, there were others, but I shall come to those in a moment, was the youngest Indian judge of the High Court. Let us refer to him only as Dharma, so as not to wound certain insensibilities. Though, those who know who I'm talking about will be left in no doubt as to his real identity. Dharma was learned, distinguished, good-looking in the way that only men become when they start greying at the temples, and of a highly respectable family. A man of principle, he agonized over his adultery, but found himself agonizing even more when Kunti abandoned him abruptly, as soon in fact, though he was not to know this, as her pregnancy was confirmed. 
A son was born of their union, a weak-chinned, gentle boy with a broad forehead, whom they decided to name Yudhishthir. Pandu swears that med- med- meditating while Kunti was in the final stages of labour, he heard a voice from the heavens proclaiming that the lad would grow up to be renowned for his truthfulness and virtue. But I've always suspected that Pandu had simply been reading a biography of George Washington too late in the night and dreamt the whole thing. When Yudhishthir was born, Hastinapur was still in the family hands and Pandu was persuaded of the need for more, what shall I call it, offspring insurance to make the succession secure. But he did not want Kunti striking up too long an association with Dharma and the lady herself was attracted by the idea of variety. Few women, Ganapati, fail to be excited by the thought of producing children from different men. It is the ultimate assertion of their creative power. Fortunately for mankind, however, or perhaps unfortunately, fewer still have the courage to put their fantasy into practice. This time, her privileged nocturnal companion was a military man, Major Vayu, of the soon-to-be-disbanded Hastinapur Palace Guard. Vayu was a large, strong, blustery character full of drive and energy, but mercurial in temperament. He breezed into Kunti's life and out of it, his ardour more gusty than gutsy, leaving in her the seed of Pandu's second son, Bhim. Bhim the brave, he came to be called in the servants' quarters, but also among the exhausted ayahs, Bhim the heavy, for his was a muscular babyhood. His narrow forehead, close-set eyes and joined eyebrows made it clear that he would never share his older brother's intellectual attainments nor inherit any part of his mother's looks. But it was also clear that in strength he would have few equals. The doctor delivering him fractured a wrist before deciding upon a caesarean. Kunti gave up nursing him when she found herself unable to rise after a minute suckling. A cot of iron had to be manufactured for him after he had demolished two wooden cribs with a lusty kick of his foot. And a succession of bruised ayahs had finally to be replaced by a male attendant, a former Hastinapur all-in wrestling champion. The last of the ayahs resigned after an incident she never ceased talking about. Apparently, she had accidentally dropped the unbearably heavy infant onto a rock in the garden and watched in horror as the stone crumbled into dust. This time, from the heavens, there was only one word, Ganapati. Ouch. But Pandu, absentee landlord of his wife's womb, was still not content. He wanted a son who would not combine the brain of Yudhishthir with the brawn of Bhim. He went deeper and deeper into yoga and meditation, mastered the heaven-pleasing asana of standing motionless on one leg from dawn until dusk, asked Kunti to conserve her energies for an entire year, which, with Bhim on the premises, she was only too happy to do, and prayed for such a son. Finally, when he judged the moment to be right, he invited the revered Brahmin divine, Devendra Yogi, to partake of the pleasures of his wife's bed. The godlike yogi's expertise made the experience rewarding for Kunti in more ways than one. And thus Ganapati was born Arjun. Arjun of lissom figure and sinewy muscle, Arjun of sharp mind and keen eye. Arjun of fine face and fleet foot. Oh, right, I know I'm getting carried away again. But the boy deserves it, Ganapati. 
The voice from the heavens proclaimed that Pandu's third son would be beloved of both Vishnu the Preserver and Shiva the Destroyer. This time Kunti heard the voice too as she lay drained upon the delivery bed. The rishis on the Himalayan mountain slopes heard it. The workers in the factories looked up from the clanging wheels of their machinery and heard it. And I, I paused in the midst of a stirring speech of sedition to a village panchayat and heard it. And Ganapati, oh Ganapati, it filled us all with joy. I think it was the startling discovery of celestial interest in her maternity that finally prompted Kunti to call a halt to her amatory experiments. Pandu, she was alarmed to note, was even prouder of his sons than he might have been if he had personally fathered them. And he was speaking speculatively of a fourth candidate to cuckold him while Kunti put her pretty foot down. It's all very well for you, she said bluntly, but you're not the one who has to grow and swell and become heavy and retch into the sink in the morning and give up biryanis and wines and swings because they make you sick and suffer the pains and the heaving and the agony of a thousand hot fingers pulling you from the insides. Kunti shuddered. She had become an elegant woman of the world. And she spoke, she inserted a Turkish cigarette into an ebony holder and waited. But Pandu disapprovingly refrained from lighting it for her. I don't think even your sages would demand more of me. Pandu was on the verge of drawing himself up self-righteously when Kunti drove home the clincher. I have been doing some reading of the Shastras myself, she said tellingly, and I find that the views you quoted aren't the only ones on the subject. As far as I can tell, the scriptures say that a woman who gives herself to five men is unclean and the one who has slept with six is a whore. You haven't overlooked that by any means, have you, my lord? Pandu opened his mouth as if to speak, then Sat shut it with a sigh. All right, have it your way, he said. He might have said a great deal and been a great deal more insistent had it not been that Madri, his inventive second wife, had already come to him with a gentle admonition. I don't mean to sound as if I'm complaining or anything, the large-hearted princess lisped. But it does seem that as if you think much more of Kunti, who was only an adopted daughter of a Maharaja anyway. I mean, I'm not comparing or anything, but I'm a real Princeton, and I do think you might want to have an heir through me as well. Pandu initially fobbed her off with gentle words of love and protestations about his reluctance to sully her chastity, which were all quite true for Pandu did not relish the prospect of being cuckolded by both his wives. But following Kunti's rebellion, he changed his mind. All right, Madri, he told his heavy-breasted helpmate. But just one affair, that's all, or my name will be the laughingstock of Hassanapur. Oh, thank you, my poor dear Pandu, Madri gushed, her conspicuous cleavage wobbling in excitement. Pandu felt a twinge and looked away. Just one affair, I promise. Madri did indeed confine herself to just one affair, as promised, but she was nothing if not imaginative. She, she seduced a pair of identical and inseparable twins. Since Ashwin and Ashwin did everything together, Madri had the double satisfaction of adhering to her promise and enjoying its violation. The results of her effort were also doubly gratifying. Not one, but two sons. Pandu, rejecting love and kush, the names of legendary Ramayana twins, as being too predictable, called Madri's boys, Nakul and Sahadev. Oh, aren't you pleased, Pandu dear? Madri beamed over the twins' credles. Twins? 
Now the nasty British can't do anything of to the succession. Or do you think, Pandu, do you think... And here her little round eyes gleamed at the prospect. Just to be safe, I should try one more? Just once? Don't you dare let her, warned Kunti when she heard of the request. She'll produce triplets next and then where will I be? Don't forget, I am your first wife after all. And since she came to the house, this Madri has been trying to steal a march on me. Scheming woman. And there, Ganapati, as you can well imagine, we had the makings of the first-rate family drama, with steamy romance and hot-flushing jealousy. But it was all cut short by the one event that made the entire issue of air conditioning redundant. The annexation of Hastinapur. <laughs> 